Good morning. Happy New Year. Glad to get back in the saddle. We had a terrific vacation and so thankful um, for you guys and allowing us some time away so we can enjoy my family up in Colorado. We skied a couple days and sledded a day and hung out and there's 14 of us and it was fantastic. So thank you and I hope and trust that your time uh, between Christmas and New Year's was, uh, was good as well. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we are starting a brand new sermon series. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. If you're in a pew Bible and you're not quite sure where it is, open it up and look in the table of contents. If you have a phone, um, it's a couple clicks away. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs, and I believe right before the Song of Solomon. Yes? You can't hear me? Is that better? Is that better? Bruce, where is he? Where's our sound guy? There is no sound guy. Oh, well, that might be the reason. Is that better? Okay, very good. I'll get it closer to my... All right, thank you. All right, Ecclesiastes is where we are. I hope that I didn't sound like uh, the guy in Charlie Brown, all garbled. And as we turn there, let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we would ask that you would be with us during this time. We are so grateful for your presence. We would ask that your spirit be with us, that it would weigh heavy on this place right now, that it would find ways into our hearts to bring us hope, love, and joy. And comfort and healing. And we pray that your word would as well. In Jesus' name, amen. We have, as a staff, really wrestled with the direction we were going to go in 2020. We started this discussion back, I believe, in October. And as we wrestled through this, uh, one of the things that uh, kept coming back to us is purpose. Why are we here? What's going on? What's the point of life? And as we uh, began to ask those questions, we gravitated more and more and more to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the book in itself is very unusual. It's going to challenge you. And it may even make you uncomfortable at times because it is the oddball of all of the books of the Bible. There's 66 of them. 65 of them are pretty consistent all throughout. It's not that this book is inconsistent. It just comes from a different point of view. Central to this book is human experience, not faith. It is philosophical. It's not theological, nor is it terribly practical th through most of the book. It asks deep and hard questions that we have all asked at one point in our lives, particularly when life is tough or when we don't understand something. What's the point? You might be a teenager 
in high school and you ask, what's the point of algebra? What's the point of reading Romeo and Juliet? You might get done with a work project at work and your boss looks at it and says, great, then files it away. After working three months on you say, what's the point? We've all asked this question. This book focuses on common experiences that we as a human race, regardless of where we live, regardless of what time we've lived, regardless of what we believe, our skin color, our language, our gender, it is a book that touches every single heart, regardless of any of those situations. This is a book that brings humanity together. It unites us because we all have these questions in common. This book is not about the promises, laws, or prophecies of God. (gasps) Did I say that? Yes. God does not audibly speak in this book. Thus, he doesn't answer explicitly. There is no... Like in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The book may be unsettling to some because there's not going to be those comfortable and comforting passages like the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. There aren't any prophecies in this book like we might find in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was uh, crushed for our iniquities. None of that in this book. Yet, as all of Scripture, it was written under the direction of the Holy Spirit to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that man may be complete and equipped for every good work. As a staff, that is quite a trick to try to figure out how to bring those two things together. So we would ask a a measure of grace and a measure of mercy from y'all and lots of prayer as we prepare these messages from week to week. The first question the preacher asks is one that we have all asked. What is the benefit of working so hard? What is the profit? Where's the profit of working so stinking hard all of the time? Let's look in chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. And it goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind. 
and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be a remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. Such an encouraging poem, isn't it? Such a great way to start off the new year with hope. Several notes. First, when we talk about the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, most people believe, uh, and the consensus is, that the man who wrote this is Solomon, the wisest man in the world. Secondly, when we look at the word vanity and vanities, we're going to see this word or these, this word combination 38 times in these 12 chapters. It is predominant. It, it is an uh, extraordinarily important theme. In some of your translations, it'll say meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. In others, it'll say vanity. Here's the essence of the word and the thought behind the word. The teacher, the, the preacher uh, Solomon, is looking to express the idea of that when you go out and you grab something in the world, it's like trying to grab smoke or fog, a cloud. You see it, it's there, it's tangibly there. And then when you go to grasp it and you open up your hands, it's gone, vaporized. It escapes, it evaporates. That's the essence of what he is, uh, of the theme that we will return to over and over and over again. And it's a common human experience. When we look at life, isn't there times where we think we've got it right in front of us and then we grab it and we open it up and there's nothing there? How about the time you have a marvelous achievement and you think that you are really getting to the top of the mountain and you get there and you're like, yes, I did it. I was in sales for years and years and years and years before uh, going back to seminary and becoming a pastor. And I wanted to get, achieve this one sales objective, this one quarter. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get there. And I put all of my effort into getting there. And I got there. And I'm like, is this all there is? Not that my bank account didn't like it. They really liked it. But as far as I thought it was really going to give me ultimate meaning. And it didn't. It was anticlimactic. You might find that in your lives in, in many different situations. You reach for it and it's there and you open it up and it's gone. 
like, uh, what's the point? That is what he's going to be driving at time after time after time throughout these 12 chapters. Ultimately, Solomon's going to contend that none of this really makes a difference. If we look at common human experience and that that's all there is, and we look at the world just through the world's eyes, then what's the point? Who cares? Do you really make a difference? Is it an eternal difference? Judging by the world's eyes, no. There isn't really anything eternal because the world has been set up to be temporary. It's the other world that is eternal. It's the other place where we get our ultimate rewards. In this poem, in the first 11 verses, he's going to point to two areas of life for us to observe this. And next week, he's going to point to four areas. And they all work together. This week, he looks at history and nature. We see this in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. Back in 1896 as the United States was really in the midst of industrialization, the Dow Jones Industrial Average came to be. It's a stock index for, for those who know, and for those who follow it, it's at like 28,000 points as of close on Friday. It started much, much more humble. Back in 1896, there was only 12 companies listed on the stock on that New York Dow Jones Industrial Average. Today, there's 30. Did you know that today none of those 12 exist on the 30? The last one that rolled off was General Electric, which rolled off um, two years ago. Walgreens replaced it. There was a company, anybody ever heard of the American Cotton Oil Company? They were one of the original 12. And they were promptly dropped five years after the, after the, uh, the, the creation of the exchange. How about the American Tobacco Company? They were the conglomerate at the time. They bought up over 200 tobacco companies in order to form this huge company so big that they were part of the stock exchange index. They were dropped in 1985. And they are now known as Fortune Brands. How about the Chicago Gas Company? Anybody heard of that? They were dropped in 1915. Point is, is as we look at, in this case, business. Imagine all of those people who worked for the American Cotton Oil Company the American Tobacco Company. Do we know any of those people? Does it matter? This generation comes, they go. How about in politics? Anybody ever heard of the Whig Party? Yeah? Okay, good. Good. Yes. Yes, interesting thing about the Whig Party 
was that it was founded in 1834 as a response to the tyranny of Andrew Jackson, the seventh president. A lot of people did not like Andrew Jackson. They rubbed him the wrong way. They thought he was abrasive, that he's bullish, arrogant. I didn't say that. <laughs> Enough people got uh, all worked up about Andrew Jackson and his policies, they decided to form a new party. And they decided to nationalize the issues. Up until that time, most of the issues were regionalized. And so you had the North and the South and the Midwest and the kind of the East Coast. And, and they're like, no, 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 we're a nation now. Let's nationalize the issues. And let's make a broad national appeal on those issues. They were very successful. Um, William Henry Harrison, one of the presidents of the United States, was the first Whig president elected to the presidency, and they won Congress, both houses, both the Senate and the House that year. They controlled everything until 1854, and Millard Fillmore uh, became president of the United States. The downfall of the Whig Party was that Millard Fillmore uh, decisively acted to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Now, this was designed by the, the folks in the South, that, and the president signed it. I believe it was Zachary Taylor signed it. Essentially said, hey, if there is a, um, a slave that is not a free man, and he comes from the South up to the North, and you find him, you have to send him back down to the South. And the national government, the army, will take those people back down to the South to their slave masters much to the cheers of the people in the South and much to the chagrin to the people in the North who were all part of the Whig Party. So it just crumbled. And it was eventually replaced by the Republican Party in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln. Anybody know that history? Few of us may have. Point is, as generations come, they go. What's the point? As we will see, there is no remembrance, as it says in verse 11, there is no remembrance of the former things, nor there will be any remembrance of the latter things, yet to be among those who come after. And this is the importance of history, and the reason why history is so important. Those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. But it says right here in Ecclesiastes that we're going to forget it. We're not going to remember any of this stuff. Why? What does it matter? Look at what's in front of us. Man, I got too many other things going on to worry about that stuff. And then he looks to nature. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it can't wait to get back the next morning to rise again. That's what hastens means. The, the literal translation would be it pants. Have you ever seen a dog really excited? What does it do? It pants. It can't wait. It can't wait for you to pet him or her. And this is the depiction, the description Solomon gives of the sun. It can't wait to get back the next day. There's a constancy in nature, whether it's the sun or the wind, whether it's the weather, whether it's the streams and the water. 
There's a constancy and a durability to it. And in the midst of all of that, what's the benefit of work? Why do we work so hard? We're going to come and we're going to go and nobody's going to remember our work. I wonder what the uh, chief finance, what would be called the chief financial officer today of the American Tobacco Company in 1810. I bet you he would like for us to remember who he was and all the great achievements he made. Like me. You might even ask, well, what's the point of all of this? We're just making a bunch of money, but are we making an impact on people? And then we get down to verse 8. All things are full of weariness. That is that all things are exhausted. Don't we feel that way at times? When all we do is work, 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 and we ask, what's the point? Don't we get discouraged? Aren't we full of despair? Aren't we tired and exhausted? He nails this. So much so that man cannot utter it or man cannot describe it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. The great theologian Mick Jagger once wrote these words. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. Right? Can't get no. Now listen, first verse. When I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. He's hearing stuff and he's like, it's worthless. All this advertising I'm hearing is... It's worthless. He continues in the second verse, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and, and tells me how my white shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, right? I mean, it's the same thing. Now he's seeing, and he's like, man, this is, this is worthless. In fact, when I asked about this song and why he wrote it, he said this, he said, satisfaction, the song Satisfaction, was my view of the world, my frustration with everything in America. It's advertising, it's constant barrage, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So I wrote these words, and we found a simple little tune, and here we are today. Everybody knows it. He was asking the same question that, that uh, Solomon is asking in this verse. What's the point? In verses 9 and 10, it's not that Solomon knew that there wouldn't be any innovation. It wasn't like he wouldn't, you know, it's not like he's saying that everything has been discovered under the sun, everything's been invented under the sun. So they didn't like they didn't have vaccines back then for mumps and polio and all the rest. Those were discovered and today, I mean, the, the microchip wasn't invented back then. So what is he talking about here? It says, what has been will be and what has been done will be done. Is there anything new under the sun? See, is, this is new. Well, it's already been done the ages before us. No, he's, he's speaking of human experience here. This is why the classics of literature 
and the classics of cinema are classics because it resonates with generation after generation after generation through multiple languages, through multiple people. Romeo and Juliet, one of the most famous plays of Shakespeare. We've all heard of it. We all know the basic premise of it. We all know that it's a tragedy. And we, when we read it or when we watch it, we go to the play and we see it, there is something there that it causes us to feel, that it causes us to remember. Like, oh, yes. For those of us who might go to opera or the symphony or hear these great pieces of music, it's the same thing. It moves us to a place of remembrance as it has moved generations of people before us. And as we begin to really examine, if we really looked at Romeo and Juliet from a scholar's eye and we began to pick apart its themes, much like you would do if you would read the cliff notes of it, to get the gist of it and the themes and, and all of the things of it and the, the character traits and all that, we're going to say, gosh, that reminds me of Uncle Joe. That reminds me of my friend Mary. Why? Because the human heart hasn't changed since Adam and Eve. And I believe that's what he is driving at and will be driving at throughout this entire book. We're going to go on a journey of human experience after human experience after human experience. And he's going to come back to the same question. What is the point? And part of that is to reveal in our own hearts and see what part of this story is ours. The other part, and I believe that this is tremendously important, is that he used... He is expressing an apologetic for the reason of God. If you noticed in, in this poem, in the first 11 verses, he is asking the questions of what and how. He is trying to answer the question why. He's using science to try to in human experience, to try to answer the ultimate question of why. And human experience in science is not designed to answer the ultimate question. He is essentially um, giving us cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger and hoping that we get the point of, wait a second, if it's not here, if I can't find ultimate satisfaction with pleasure or with wealth, or with work, or with wisdom, or with this, or with that, then where do I find ultimate meaning? Where is it? And why do these questions keep, back, keep coming back and haunting me? One of the ironies about this entire book is you have the wisest man in the world writing a book that he doesn't know the answer to. Well, he does. He just draws it out and draws it out, causing us and forcing us to think and to really get down to the core of our heart when we ask the ultimate question. Roger's going to go into much greater detail next week about the idea of work and what's the point of work and why do we have it 
and where do we find our ultimate meeting. But I would just say this to set the table. Looking at the world as if it gives us ultimate meaning in our lives will lead to despair. Nothing in this world was designed to ultimately satisfy us. Now, I want to make it clear when I say ultimately satisfy us. Do things in the world satisfy us? Absolutely. A good meal satisfies me. How about you? Right? A good experience like the vacation we just went on, that satisfies me. That's nourishment to my soul. But is it the ultimate thing? A good TV show satisfies me. Good music satisfies me. Having a little bit of extra money in my pocket, that satisfies me. Having a roof over my head satisfies me. But is that the ultimate satisfaction? There is more to this story. And that's what we will discover as we move down through the road of Ecclesiastes. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we would ask that you would cause us to really wrestle with that ultimate question. That you would work on us so that we do not put our ladder against the wrong building. And as we climb up that ladder and we get to the very top and we look around like, oh man, I'm on the wrong building. Lord, we would ask that you would be instructive, that you would be loving, that you would be uh, graceful and merciful to us as we explore this question and that you would guide us to the ultimate truth, to the ultimate satisfaction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.